All right, guys, welcome to the debrief. David, what did you think about that conversation with Brent? Yeah, I, I really like having the macro people on the podcast. Def, definitely lets me sharpen my stick. The first thing I think I want to bring up, there's a bunch of things I want to bring up, uh, is that one of uh, Brent's prescriptions, his advice was to purchase and hold non-sovereign assets. And so like that's like gold. Uh, Bitcoin also fits into this conversation. But Ethereum is literally a landscape of non-sovereign assets, like DeFi tokens, non-sovereign assets. And so if you are into the, the concept of owning assets that are outside of any sort of jurisdictional region, no, look no further than DeFi tokens. <laughs> like I, I know that they're like, they're, they're low cap, they're micro cap, they don't fit into the macro perspective. But if you, as somebody who might be interested in creating a portfolio of non-sovereign uh, instruments, uh, maybe that's crypto monies like ETH or crypto uh, capital assets like, you know, many of the DeFi tokens that that fits the bill, you know, non-sovereign assets live on Ethereum. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, to, so to our listeners, the reason we didn't concentrate so much on Ethereum and DeFi like versus maybe past episodes that, that you've heard about is I don't think Brent is is highly tuned into them. I think he has tuned into kind of Bitcoin Twitter. And he sort of has his spar battles with, with the Maximus crew, but I don't think he's plugged into what's going on with Ethereum and DeFi. So there just wasn't a ton to talk about. We really brought Brent on for more of his, his macro perspective. But yeah, so what struck me about that conversation, David, was I feel like I feel like he compared to how we think about things, probably, he got all of the parts right, but then drew the wrong conclusion at the end of it, right? So like his conclusion was definitely the dollar and I see that, but but also, you know, personally. And so therefore, because of these things, I buy gold. And I just, I don't get gold because we're talking about like, first of all, um, the thing that you just brought out was, was non-sovereign value. Um, sovereign escape route is the term he used. I'm pretty sure Brent probably doesn't own the gold that he holds in gold bars in his living room or like under his floorboard somewhere, right? I'm pretty sure he probably holds gold like most sane investors in the world in, in ETFs, right? Or in some sort of uh, securitized form of gold, right? Which means that's not really a sovereign escape route. If, if, if your nation state goes down the tubes, if the legal system starts to fail, if there's some sort of issue with gold being a store of, store of value, the first thing to go is going to be those certificates that you hold electronically for the gold that some other custodian has in a vault somewhere, right? That's like nation state legal system. It's very much a sovereign thing. So right. I'm not if the, actually- If the assets you hold are traded on the New York Stock Exchange- it's a sovereign asset. It doesn't matter <laughs> right? if the asset itself is gold. Like we can right? trade gold on the stock exchange, but if it's on the stock exchange, it's part of the it's part of the sovereign. So I get how um, gold maybe protects you against some of the the monetary inflation sort of thing, but doesn't definitely doesn't protect you from from sovereign nation state state turmoil. So like that was one thing. But then we also talked about the fourth turning and the lack of faith in institutions. And very much I wanted to be like, yes, that's bankless. That's mm -hmm. why we are going bankless, right? Mm -hmm. the, the whole GameStop thing where um, brokerage accounts are turning mm -hmm. off people's ability to trade, right? That's why right. we go bankless. Right. Um, and, and the whole move, I think, of, of younger generations into this whole digital realm, mm -hmm. um, I think wasn't, wasn't um, 
he didn't connect those dots either sure. because there's no way that millennials and, and Zoomers and even Gen Z are going to put their store of value in shiny metal objects. Like I just, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be digital in some form, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want it again, digital and you want it outside of the bounds of the sovereign system, well, it's gotta be crypto, gotta be crypto mm -hmm. something. So a lot of the, the connecting dots, but different conclusions at the end here. And um, that part was, was interesting to me. Yeah, he talked about he, he liked to moderate people's opinions on Bitcoin. And I think if you're coming from a world, a lot of people, and I think Brent is no exception, get exposed to the cryptocurrency industry through Bitcoin and Bitcoiners and Bitcoin maximalists who beat the hammer about how fantastically awesome Bitcoin is. Uh, and so that's why I think people like Brent come onto the show and be like, you know, I think Bitcoin is a viable asset to include in your portfolio, which is already, you know, head and shoulders above where we were from people's opinions, you know, four years ago. But then people like Brent are always compelled to be like, but it's not like the saving grace of all assets, right? It's not coming to like, you know, save you from all future strife. It's not going to, you know, it's not this perfect thing that's going to go up forever and into the, into the, in, into the infinite infinity. And of course as he's right when he frames it like that. And the reason why he has to say that is he has to moderate some of the crazy stuff that Bitcoin maximalists say, but I would still say that Bitcoin is way more bullish than what Brent made it out to be. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, sure, well, Bitcoin is not a wholly pristine asset, yet it's really, really bullish and it's definitely going to go up. And I'm, I'm way more bullish on Bitcoin than Brent would be, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is funny that you say that because I did feel like a lot of his, uh, the conversation around Bitcoin was um, targeted at maybe Bitcoin maximalists he's talked to, right? The, the, he had some very good points about Tether, Right. And I think that in the Bitcoin community that I've seen, maybe you'd be able to tell me more, uh, David, like um, about some of these conversations. But there seems to be you like, just call me a Bitcoin. I'm not. No, dude, I, you got another like POV crypto. You've got Christian on that show. Right. So you hear his perspective more. But there seems to be this blind spot in Bitcoiner circles around Tether, for instance, which is not present in more the DeFi Ethereum world. Like, um, there's no love lost on Tether in DeFi and Ethereum, right? Like who knows what Tether is? Is it backed? Is it not backed? I don't know. And that's what Brent was saying, but Bitcoiners kind of give Tether a pass. He had a good point there, but I don't think the rest of the crypto world would give Tether the same pass. So to what you, you were saying, it seems like very much he was responding to some of those criticisms rather than kind of looking at where crypto really is. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. The the conversations that uh, we have here with people that come into the crypto space and like Lynn Alden, like Lynn Alden went on the gamut of podcasts before she came to us. Like a lot of these conversations are framed or, or even tainted by like the podcast that some of these guests have come on before they've finally come to Bankless because <laughs> like, because they're the Bitcoiners are just, are just tainting the conversations left and right before what, what I think is a relatively neutral podcast. I think we do a good job uh, trying to be neutral whenever, whenever we can. Uh, and maybe many, many of our guests are coming in not, uh, understanding that. Um, I think that's what, what played out here. Yeah, probably. What, what did you think about, um, the idea behind the dollar milkshake theory? I wasn't sure going into this, whether I understood, um, mm -hmm. whether it was prescriptive of kind of what mm -hmm. to buy, whether it was like predictive right. in any right. way, what it was, but he, the way he framed it was more, this is kind of a mental model. Like you have to mm -hmm. understand sure. that so much debt is denominated in us dollars. So when X 
and why happen, a ton mm-hmm. of capital is going to flow back to US dollars. And I think as a mental model, it was very helpful uh, for, for me to sort of understand and hear him articulate that. But what's your, what's your takeaways on the theory as a whole coming out of this yeah. episode? Yeah, um, I think the biggest takeaway for me was the conversation around um, the Federal Reserve and its capacity to invoke change. Um, I think he, most of all, was most um, had had the strongest beliefs that the Federal Reserve is actually, you know, they're on the ride with the rest of us. They are not turning the ride on and off. They are on the roller coaster with us, right? They are experiencing the roller coaster with us. Maybe they have a few extra dials and buttons that we don't have as individuals, but the for the uh, Brent seems to think that the trajectory of the U.S. dollar has largely like it's it's on its way, and there's not no, not much that we can really do about it. Um, and I, I thought that perspective was pretty interesting. So the perspective that the Fed is basically like lost control, right? Uh, and that's my mind went to. Um, and, and what I thought was also extremely valuable was his belief that like, okay, so there's this out of largely out of control dollar, maybe we can guide it, but it's going to have a mind of its own. Um, one of the ways that we're going to attempt to guide it is money printer go burr. And then there's going to be a, a bunch of political jostling about where that money is injected, right? Do we inject it domestically or do we inject it abroad to serve the global Euro dollars market, right? Um, and I think that was a fantastic bridge to the fourth turning conversation, which is about can our institutions do the jobs that we want them to and do, are they serving us the people or are they doing just, are they rogue? Are they just like doing every institution for themselves? Everything's kind of falling apart. Um, uh, and I, I think, and you've said this a number of times, Ryan, where we talk about the stimulus checks where, you know, people get, you know, magically $1,200 show up in their bank account and people are like, hmm, what's, what is money? Like, why do I pay taxes? Like, where does this come from? And then all of a sudden people are going to connect that dot to some sort of per, perhaps some future stimulus or some uh, future package where there's a lot of aid for non-U.S. people. And I think the, the, now that the curtain has been drawn back behind the Federal Reserve, people that, you know, both the left and the right got up off their butts and rioted this year. Um, I think when these types of, of disgruntled people see that there's aid going elsewhere abroad, uh, that that is going to invoke further uh, social unrest. I think that was a very interesting point from Brent that I'm, I'm now chewing on. Yeah, me too. Like this came through in our Lynn Alden episode, which is, this is maybe Muslim or that. The other episode I was thinking of is our uh, Ben Hunt episode, right? And it's this narrative that's being repeated, like the little guys getting screwed and populism is on the rise. And the Fed as an institution itself, when you strip it all away, right? um, It's not an unbiased, apolitical, algorithmic machine. It's a bunch of guys making decisions, political decisions, even emotional decisions, emotional decisions. And if they're on the ride, as you said, just with kind of the rest of us as part of the, the, the machine and the, the, the mechanism, like this rise of populism, they're almost going to be forced into the decisions that they make. It, it just seems what Lynn Alden's saying, what Ray Dalio's saying, what Brent Johnson's saying today is like, um, there's no other path forward than to start printing a whole lot of money for individual citizens. And this is going to happen in every single country, like 
around the world. And then you have to extrapolate that forward and say, once somebody starts getting a check, as you were just saying, $2,000 a month, UBI in their bank account, um, how do they start to think about fiat money after those things start to happen? And where do they choose to store their wealth? Uh, I think these are all going to be questions that, uh, that, that face us in the next uh, 10 years. This other recurring theme that came from the Ben Hunt episode is, is this, that um, governments of the world are not going to lose their monetary sovereignty like lightly, right? They're just not, not going to, their fingers, yeah. they're not going to fade into the night. Uh, they are going to fight for it tooth and bone, right? So you have to claw it out of their hands. Uh, what do you think about that take? Yeah, um, I, there's an article coming out in the Bankless pod, or no, out of the Bankless newsletter tomorrow, the day after recording, which for listeners, it will be last Thursday. And I talk about the seniorage problem. And uh, the seniorage problem is the problem of like, if you are the entity that has power, you have the ability to print currency because you have the power. Power, power having the power allows you to make currency. Um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they, we try and solve these the seniorage problem a couple different ways. And, and the problem actually arises like, okay, now that you have the power to mint coin because you have power, uh, you need to fund yourself to pr protect yourself and make sure that no one can take the money printer away. Because what is the world's most valuable artifact or the mo world's most valuable relic, relic is the money printer. Of course, it's the most valuable thing. It's the thing that makes value. It's how, how more of a valuable thing could there be? And so right now, the United States as a nation state has the world's most valuable relic. Uh, and monetary competition with Bitcoin and Ethereum, Bitcoin tries to solve the seniors problem by like deleting it, saying like, you know what? We don't actually even need to issue and distribute currency. We will just delete that problem. And Ethereum tries to solve that problem by, you know, instead of trying to have political decisions about where cash gets injected, we just Robin Hood it, we give it to everyone. That's how we solve these problems. Um, and now the nation state, the United States nation state has this competitor to Bitcoin that has a more viable solution to the seniors problem because it has a less political way of distributing coins, currency to the people. Now we have to talk about like, this is a very, at Bankless, we try and, and just uh, pull the curtain back on metaphors like this and make them very naked and apparent. Does the nation state and does the United States nation and the people behind the scenes understand that fight? I don't think so. And if we are using the, the metaphor of the fourth turning where our institutions are falling apart, I think we could say that like, the ability for the nation state or whoever is in control or responsible for maintaining the power of the dollar, who is that? I don't even know who that is. Who's responsible for maintaining that? Do Are they even able to coordinate around saving the dollar as a store of value asset? Is that even something that's possible? I am not optimistic that like whoever's in charge of maintaining the legitimacy of the dollar is even aware of these dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. And it does make me wonder always, right? Like we've lived our lives in U.S. hegemony, right? Basically the U.S. has been the dominant world power from a hard politics perspective, right? Um, that seems to be fading. I mean, China is going to probably within this decade flip in the U.S. in terms of GDP. It's turning into a much more, I guess, multipolar kind of multilateral kind of world, right? And so um, I think the U.S., has to contend with that. And right. So it's this idea that 
like maybe a non-sovereign, credibly neutral monetary system might take shape in a more multilateral world. Um, what, what were your thoughts on this? So we asked the question at the end about like advice he'd give. Um, I think Brent mainly with uh, Santiago Capital manages funds for high net worth individuals. The interesting thing about high net worth individuals is they're always like, they've already made their money. That's why they're high net worth individuals, right? So they're- They have in, different goals. They have different goals. They're very much in wealth preservation mode. And when you're in wealth preservation mode, you think about things like diversification, right? Because- and gold. <laughs> yeah, that's actually when you start <laughs> to gold. think about gold. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but like, I think many probably people on the bankless journey are not so much in wealth preservation mode because uh, we have something that um, people- who are high net worth individuals, I suppose, don't necessarily have, which is like, like time, but like also um, <laughs> we're looking to grow our wealth rather than preserve it. Right. So his, his advice at the end was like, don't go into risky assets and that sort of thing. And I, I don't know, I, I would almost, I would almost say the, the, the model for wealth growth is probably like highly concentrated bets in things that have a tremendous amount of upside. And maybe Brent would agree too with that if we mm -hmm. sort of like framed it in that way. Um, and that's very much what like the strategy is in the bankless portfolio. It's kind of a, a barbell strategy. You never risk enough to destroy your life and come crashing mm -hmm. down, right? But like the amount that you, like the, the funds that you do risk are very much weighted towards high risk, high return, long time horizon, assets. And we find a ton of upside in kind of the crypto space for that. So it's a bit of a, a different model than I think he was, he was proposing. Although I liked what he was saying, like, you know, um, uh, you know, keep, keep getting educated on these things, invest mm -hmm. in yourself, um, make sure that you, you are, are going into these things with eyes wide open. I think that's all important, but concentrated bets. I don't know. That's, that's how I'm approaching life these days. What about you? <laughs> uh, this, this is a conversation between me and all, all my like Seattle friends, and my roommate, like we're young, like concentrated bets are where it's at. And you're totally right. Right. Brent comes from a perspective of trying to preserve wealthy individuals wealth. And I think if you are an, a wealthy elite going into the decade of the 2020s, you have everything to lose because you're at the top. Right, and the, the the world is changing under your feet. Like assets and and asset prices are doing crazy stuff. Uh, you don't know what the value of the dollar is. The bond market is no longer like an investable place to put your money. Uh, so everything is changing. And so, what can you do other than like you know spread your wealth across many different assets just to just to catch them all? Right. Um, that's what you would do if you have everything to lose. If you are a younger millennial, and we're seeing this angst with like the Robin Hood YOLOers and the Wall Street bets, like what is Wall Street bets other than people that make concentrated bets? That is a place of concentration because that's how you make or lose money. Concentrated bets makes or lose money. It doesn't keep money the same. <laughs> it's the one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't keep money the same. And it's either going up or it's going down. Uh, it's not staying the same. Um, and that's why I think I'm. Uh, I think it's it's rational advice to talk about the value of of crypto monies, Bitcoin and Ether, because they are vehicles to capture concentrated bets that we think are once in a lifetime opportunities. Um, and um, I, I think if, if I think this is a slightly different conversation than what we were having with Brent, where Brent was talking about like how to preserve wealth. Um, 
if you are a, a younger person who is on the cusp of this crazy frontier of DeFi and Ethereum, like maybe a concentrated bet might actually be like a, a path out of the this the mess of a nine to five that no one wants anymore that I don't think is going to be the status quo in, in, the, in the long-term future, but this is not financial advice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not financial advice. I like, but th this is very much how I think about things and approach things. One thing, if you are, if we are young that you have is time, right? So, um, you know, we were talking about this on a roll up recently, David, but no one who's invested in Bitcoin has ever lost money if they've mm -hmm. waited over three and a half years Been mm -hmm. patient. Right. True. So if you can almost approach this like a, a young Warren Buffett might mm -hmm. approach this, which is mm -hmm. you have a long-term time horizon. You're not mm -hmm. just going to YOLO into a shitcoin to like make a 10 X mm -hmm. next month. Right. So you have a long-term time horizon, but you're also making concentrated bets, right? Ne never, mm -hmm. never more than you can risk. I mean, you're not doing mm -hmm. things like uh, putting your like mortgage into this or doing margin Leverage or, or something crazy else. things. Leverage can hurt leverage. you, right? Leverage, but leverage concentrated bets, why would you want a, a gold and bonds and stocks in this like diversified portfolio that your financial advisor is going to tell you this is the way forward, young man? Um, like, that's not what I, like, that's not the approach I would advise to somebody. It would be if I was giving financial advice, David. <laughs> which I know you're not. <laughs> which, you know, I'm not. It would be very much like barbell strategy where you've got mm -hmm. like, some reserve assets. So you're going to be able to feed yourself and your family and you've got like your house paid for and you don't have like silly debt and these sort of things, mm -hmm. credit card debt, and then high risk, high return things that you're willing to hold for the next 10 years, whatever happens from a volatility perspective mm -hmm. and, and nothing in the middle. That's the barbell, mm -hmm. right? And on the crypto money side, uh, to me, like assets like Bitcoin, assets like Ether, these are the most blue chip of assets that you can purchase uh, where like th that, that should be the bulk of your high mm -hmm. risk, high return asset portfolio. I think that's the way to play the next 10 years. Um, I don't think Brent would agree, but again, as you said, mm -hmm. that was, he, he's very much coming at it from a mindset of wealth preservation, whether that rather than wealth growth, which is a totally different story. Yeah. The, the concentrated bet play has been the play that I've been playing ever since I got into crypto. Back in, back in 2017, uh, I, I, in 2017, I was 24 or five years old uh, and I had four ETH to my name at the peak of, of 2017. And I had, it was, it was all, it was one, my entire portfolio was hundred percent ETH. Uh, and I, I was concentrated. And for, for me at the time, that was like I, the 2017 bull market was like a pretty fun time. Um, and I kept on that concentration going all the way from bull to bear. And I, re I remember uh, ETH breaking down and falling down to $600 and talking to my friends like, yo, I'm trying to buy as much ETH as possible right now, $600. <laughs> this was in uh, 2018? Sometime? This was in 2018, yep. Uh -huh. And of course, that obviously was too soon. But it didn't matter. I kept on, I, I kept on getting buying and burning all the way down to 2018. Nothing I, I would buy was in the green in 2018, obviously, because it kept on going down. 
but I kept on and, and I had the, the backstop of my youth behind me. I was only burning like, you know, two years of my re relatively low 20 somethings income. Uh, and, and so like, you know, at the, at the bottom of the, the 2018 bear, I basically had a portfolio that was negligible. Like that, that was what it was. Um, but I believed in Ethereum. I had conviction and I had concentrated bets and that 2018 portfolio of basically all ether rolled into 2019, which rolled into 2020, which turned out to actually work out over the long term. And that concentrated bet of ether in the bear markets worked out for me. Um, and I think that when why I talk about the cryptocurrency industry as like a once in a lifetime opportunity, Bitcoin has Bitcoin has like four um, four four pumps and then bear markets. You know, four four bull markets, four four uh, four bear markets, or it's been in one long ten year, twelve year long bull market. Yes. I think that's really the more valuable perspective. And I think, and why I was giving Brent pushback at the beginning of this debrief where like, you know, Bitcoin is going up for 10, 12 years straight until it stops going up for that many like years in a row. Like I'm on the fucking train. I'm on this that train. Is why, this is what I don't understand, David, if uh, people get so worked up over volatility and the, the traditional finance world likes to measure uh, risk is volatility, right? So like, if there's the potential for the asset to go down 50% a year or go up like 5x a year, right? That it's it's a highly volatile asset and it's a and therefore it's a risky asset. That's not how real people should be measuring risk, in my opinion, right? Like so I think that Bitcoin and Ether are actually much lower risk assets than traditional finance. Um, views them as because they're coming mm -hmm. through the lens of volatility. And yes, these assets are, are highly volatile assets. They're volatile and we don't understand them. Therefore risk. No, exactly. That, that, equa that equation doesn't necessarily mean that they are as risky as traditional finance thinks. Um, and like, if you have the patience and you have to have also like you, you've, you've done it now, you got to holding through a bear market is like, it's not what the human brain the it's evolved at, human no. brain mm -hmm. is good at, right? Because it feels like pain. And particularly with crypto, when you pop open, you know, your block folio charts from your phone and it's like, oh my God, it's down 20%. Like Again? that hurts. <laughs> it hurts psychologically. Mm -hmm. But if you can get past that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that hard to do mm -hmm. well in crypto. You just have mm -hmm. to, like when you were talking about 2018, you were not only... Um, continuing to buy, but you were also like researching the hell out of ether. Mm -hmm. Like I know because you were writing stuff that I was reading back in mm -hmm. 2018 and 2019, mm -hmm. like you doubled down. And I think you probably looked at the asset and you were like, Hey, why did this lose so much? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, was I wrong? Mm -hmm. And you went through and methodically evaluated your, uh, the, the fundamental reason why you bought in the first place. And that just made you more bullish and mm -hmm. want to hold more. So like, you knew why you were buying and you also knew why you were holding. Um, and you developed the emotional tolerance for yeah. holding through that extreme volatility. And that's kind of what you need to develop if you're mm -hmm. going to stay on this, this bankless journey across years and across decades. This is off topic, but I felt like it's, it's good that we're talking about this. Yeah, I, yeah. The, the the debriefs are by no means any commitments to actually to only be talking about just the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, the buying you know six hundred dollar ETH in twenty eighteen uh, before it was before it was going to take three years to ever get to that point again. 
it, it taught me that like, and, and like you said, I did the research. I never had any doubts. Like I never said, like, do I ever, do I sell this ETH because it's not working out? Never once did that cross my mind. The lesson that I learned is that it takes a really long time for the fundamentals to catch up with the market. Uh, and that was my first entrance into the cycle. Uh, and what basically I just got burned on timing, not on fundamentals. I think that's, that's how I, um, that's how I analyze like my, my not buying at the right moment, you know, not being patient for the bear market. I didn't really know, you know, I thought that at the top of 2017, that like that was it and crypto is now here to stay. And like, we now have a crypto run world that was relatively naive. Um, uh, but it was never once a question of the fundamentals, but it was more learning about the other variables that can get in front of uh, fundamentals and how to sift through that noise. I think that was the, the big lesson that people learn when they go through bear markets. Yeah, last thing I'll say is I really enjoyed your post that you wrote for Bankless uh, this week. So it'll be by the time you guys hear this, it'll be last week. Mm -hmm. um, talking about kind of um, your experience going through through 2017 and and sort of holding through that bear market. So that's a that's a great piece. If folks want to check that out, maybe we'll include that um, in the in the notes here on the Bankless newsletter. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right, David. And um, I think this is a pr pr pretty good insight for for folks mm -hmm. to listen to. So anything else, man? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, let's talk about uh, Ben Hunt, the final boss, um, because that's something Wait, that Ben Hunt's not the final boss. Ben, ben Hunt, the final boss. Yeah, that was my chicken scratch notes. Uh, ben, the, the final boss conversation came up in the Ben Hunt podcast, and it was kind of reiterated here with Brent, um, uh, where uh, the final boss is the Federal Reserve or people that want to give up control over the money printer. Uh, no, we did already. We already kind of talked about this. Yeah. You want we to could end just it cut this and wrap it up? Yeah, we could end it. Okay, I'll just end it. Uh, no, Ryan, I think that's all I have to, to talk about. Anything from you? No, man. It's great. All right. all right, I'll see you next time. All right, good debrief. Bye. <laughs>